Thank you so much. Let's hear it for Vaughn and the worship band. Thank you for leading us. Such an incredible way to start the morning. Let's meet here every morning, okay? Let's do that. I am so excited to be here at Mount Hermon. As I mentioned last night, it's one of my favorite places to be. Um, I hope that you are glad that you are here as well. Um, my guess is, is that it took a lot to get here, though, right? I mean, it takes a lot for busy families to carve out this much time to be able to be together, right? I know for me, it takes a lot of lists. Where are my list makers? Where's my list people? Yeah, okay, you get it. Um, how many of you are, are so bad that, that if you do something not on the list, you write it, and, and then you <laughs> immediately cross it off? Yeah, that's, that's a problem, but we're not going to talk about that right now. Uh, others of you, maybe you don't have an actual physical list, but my guess is that you have the mental list going on all the time. All the things that we need to check off all the time. Oh yeah, I have to pay the cell phone bill. I got to email back that client. I got to get the smog check. I got to sign the kids up for soccer. I got to figure out what's for dinner. Uh, I got to put my gym clothes by my laptop bag so I don't forget to take them to work with me on Monday. I got to call my mom. I got to pick up a pizza on the way home because I forgot to figure out what's for dinner. All this stuff, right? Because let's face it, we've got a lot of spinning plates. We have a lot of things that we're managing and we're changing and adjusting as new things come up. And that's just what it is to be, to be a mom or a dad or a wife or a husband or a son or a daughter or really just a human. You know, a human has to get stuff done. That's just how it goes. And and on top of all that, as if the list is not hard enough to manage, don't you find that it's easy to get distracted? Is that just me? It is so easy to get distracted. Just not too long ago, I was having coffee and I opened the drawer to get a spoon out to stir my coffee and I noticed that the, the pole was a little loose. So I thought, oh, I can fix that real quick. And so I went out to the garage to get a screwdriver. But when I went out there, I passed the washing machine. And I remembered I had a load in there. And so I went to put it in the dryer. But what's in the dryer? The other load I didn't take out. And so I take out those towels. And I think, OK, I'll go take these upstairs. I'll fold them. I fold all the towels. I go to put the towels away in one of the bathrooms. And I see in there a flyer for my kid's school. And I think I better put that in her backpack because she probably needs it on Monday. So I go into her room to the backpack, and in the backpack I see her lunch bag that she didn't take out. And so I take out the lunch bag, and I go downstairs, and I clean out the gross stuff. But I found an old spoon in there, so I was able to finally stir my coffee. <laughs> it was cold by then, but that's what microwaves are for. Uh, I kind of felt like that mouse in If You Give a Mouse a Cookie. Does anybody know that book? This, somebody loves that book, apparently. <laughs> the simple truth is our lives have become a series of things that we've got to get done, right? And here's the brutal truth. The list isn't going anywhere. I feel like we should just have a communal defeated sigh about that. Can we just like, one, two, three, <sighs> the list is not going anywhere. If you have a job or kids or a hobby or a house, or a spouse, or school, or if you ever want to go to the grocery store and not forget something that you're supposed to get, the list 
is not going anywhere. The demands on us are just here to stay. But we're survivors, right? We figure it out. We figure out how to keep ourselves organized. We've got apps on our phones. We've got family calendars up on the wall. And we do all the things. We roll with it. We do the best we can. But in all of these ways that we have had to adjust and adapt to manage the demands on us, it has impacted the way that we live. It's impacted us relationally. It's impacted us mentally. And what happens is that we have become people who give a little bit of ourselves here and a little bit of ourselves here, and you can have this much of me at this time, and I have only this little bit of time for you, and we get all parsed out in all these little bits, and it feels like, if we're honest, it feels like the life is getting kind of sucked out of us, right? And yet, we keep going, and we manage, and we try harder, and we work our tails off to be everything that we think we're supposed to be. And meanwhile, in those moments right before our head hits the pillow and we have that little honest thought, it kind of feels like maybe we're, we're losing everything that we're supposed to be. Like we feel a little bit numb inside. Have you ever felt that? Kind of like you're just going through the motions. And we think, I cannot give one more thing to one more person because it's all given out. And then we open our Bible and we come across a verse that says this in Mark. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and your strength and your mind. And that verse basically says that God wants all of us, 100%. And we're like, well, God, I've got 15 minutes, three Tuesdays from now. Does that work for you? Like, I have a lot I'm managing down here, so that's just how it's going to have to go. And God's kind of like, well, let me tell you how it works for me. I want all of you. And we kind of get stuck in this cycle where we feel like we can't give anymore, and yet we feel like we're not giving enough. And this morning what I want to do is talk about the remedy to that problem that we so often experience and what God wants from us in all of this and how he truly does enable us to give him all of us and what that looks like. I want to tell you this morning a story of a group of people who lived a long time ago, and they believed in God, and they believed that they were God's people. In fact, God said to him, the Bible tells us, he says, I will be your God, and you will be my people. And this is how it went with them, that God wanted more than anything to be in a relationship with them where they were loyal to each other. They were his people, and he was their God, and they would be loyal to each other, and he loved them. And he wanted them to give him 100%. He wanted them to be all in. But they, along the way, decided that they were not able to give God everything. And so as we hear their story this morning, my hope is that we'll see ourselves in that story, and as we see how things went for them, my hope is that we will learn something about God's message to us 
as we follow that same journey, that we will have some insight toward what it is to respond to a God who wants us to be all in when it comes to a relationship with him. So the people I'm talking about are the Israelites. Some of you probably knew that. And they had believed in God for many generations, but there came a point in their story that they were so out of touch with what it was to be in relationship with God that they needed God to show them again in real specific, tangible ways what it looked like to follow him. And so God gave them some ways, some guidelines of how to live in relationship with him. And we often refer to these as the Ten Commandments. You probably have heard of the Ten Commandments, but really that was just the start of it. But the Ten Commandments are the ones that we are most familiar with. Now, just quick time out right there because as soon as, if you're like me, as soon as you hear that the way God helped them be in relationship is that he gave them a bunch of rules. I mean, if you're like me, you think, oh, God is such a control freak. What is the deal with God? Why does he then lay out all these things? Hey, you better do this and definitely don't do this. And when you do this, make sure that you do this. And whatever you do, don't do this. I mean, I kind of get that sense. It feels like he's very rigid and demanding. But what we don't always get when we look at the Israelites and their context is that they celebrated these rules. They were so happy to have these commandments because unlike other gods that other people followed, their God spoke to them. And their God communicated what a relationship would be like. And he gave them some clear guidelines of how do you get to know me. And I think in our kind of Western mindset, we, we just don't understand how much they embraced the commandments. To them, it was freeing. Knowing what God wanted from them was freeing. And freeing in other ways, too. For example... One of the Ten Commandments said that you should remember the Sabbath. The Sabbath was the day where they would do no work. They would just worship God and be together and eat. And that was the day that they would do that. And the Ten Commandments said you have one day every seven days where you do that. Now listen to that. Because this was a group of people, this was a community who for generations back were slaves. Slaves. Do you think a slave gets a weekend? Do you think a slave has a whole day off to not produce anything? So imagine with your whole history being slavery to have a God who says every week you take a whole day and you do not work because I want you to live into the truth that I love you regardless of how productive you are. You see how that's different? We look at Sabbath today like, oh, man, it's a lot of work to take a whole day and just focus on God. That's a message for a different time. But they looked at it as freeing. They saw the commandments as freeing. In fact, they would have a yearly celebration, they still do, to celebrate the commandments. 
When I was in seminary and my Old Testament professor was talking about this, he, he acted out as if he's holding up the law. That's what they would do at the celebration. They would hold up the law and they would run around and they would say, yay for the law. Our God loves us. Our God gave us these so that we know how to be in relationship with him. We are chosen. What a good God we have. You see, that's how they viewed these commandments that were given them. But over time, as is often the case with us, this law, it did turn into a list of do's and don'ts for them. And it eventually, it became their list of what to do. And once they shifted over to seeing it as a rigid list of do's and don'ts, this thing that used to be so celebrated now became the very place that marked every failure. And once again, these people found themselves very far from the relationship that God intended. And in that time, they were overtaken by their enemies. They became captives and they were taken away, most of them, from the land that God had given them. And in that time, they felt very removed from God and removed from a relationship with him. Now, maybe you're here this weekend and you are feeling a little removed in your relationship with God. Maybe you have kind of been going through the motions, maybe kind of faking it for so long that you kind of forgot what it feels like to be real. Maybe some of you here have sort of segmented whatever your faith looks like to be something that happens just on Sundays or maybe Christmas and Easter or maybe once a year when you come here, but you don't see it as anything to do with the other parts of your life. Maybe some of you are in a time of transition or a time of decision, and that can be a time where we, we look so inward that we feel disconnected from God. So whatever that is for you, what I want to ask you this morning to be thinking about is where are you feeling disconnected from God? See, I believe that God invites us into an interactive, dynamic, responsive relationship with him, where we can be in the moment with him, and where we can have this exchange of writing our story together with him and have the back and forth that every good relationship has, right? And the best parallel that I can come up with about this give and take is in improvisation. Have any of you ever heard of improvisation? Okay, well, I love improv. Uh, we moved to the Bay Area about 12 years ago, but prior to that, we lived in Las Vegas. And in Las Vegas, while we lived there, I was in an all-improvised show on the Strip with an organization called The Second City. And what we would do, our cast, is that we would do a made-up show every night uh, where it was similar to Whose Line Is It Anyway? Have you ever watched that show? Where you would get um, a suggestion from the audience and then you would have to incorporate it into the scene that you're doing. And one of the things I noticed in improvisation is that I began to see these guidelines for improv that really paralleled my faith. In fact, that's what my book is about. It's all the different things through improv that I learned and how they taught me something about God. I know it's crazy to think I learned something about God on the Las Vegas Strip, but it's true. <laughs> and one of the most important things about improv is to say yes. Can we all say yes on three? One, two, three. Yes, that is an important thing to do. And this is why. Because you and your scene partner are just making it up. 
You don't know what they're going to say. You don't know what you're going to say. You just have to go with it. So let me show you an example of what that might look like. So um, somebody over here, tell what is a relationship that you and I might have? Maybe we're neighbors or just shout something out. We're coworkers. Okay, so we're going to be in a scene where we're coworkers, and what is the problem that we're addressing in our relationship? What? We're out of bagels at the meeting. The all-important crisis at work. There's no food. Okay, so we're doing a scene where we are coworkers and God forbid we're out of bagels. And so for me in this scene with my coworker friend, for me to say yes is to agree that yes, we are coworkers and yes, that is our problem. Um, as opposed to if I say no, which she, she comes up and says, hey, Sandy, the meeting's about to start and we're out of bagels again. And I say, who are you? I've never seen you before in my life. Like that would be a no. But a yes is to engage in that. Okay, it's simple. Let's do another one. Somebody over here, what's a relationship we might have? We're siblings. Okay, so you and I are siblings, and what might the problem be that we're trying to solve? I broke his favorite toy. Are we adults? I guess we're... We are, we are, okay, so and that's a good one because, what? Yes, we're adults, okay. <laughs> good, good clarification. Uh, so, so to say yes in that means that yes, we are siblings. Yes, we have a common history. Yes, I broke his toy. Yes, I'm always doing that kind of stuff and it bothers him. You see, that's just engaging and saying yes. And so the parallel that I saw in improvisation with that is that isn't that how our lives could be with God. What if we always said yes to God, even when we don't know how it's going to play out? That's one of the things that I saw as a parallel to improvisation. But there's more to that, and it has to do with this back and forth piece. Because not only in improv do you say yes, but you do, you do something that's called yes and. And that's where you add to what's happening. So I not only receive what you say and agree with it, but then I add to it. I'm listening to you, I'm in the moment with you, and I add to it. So in my coworker scene, we're coworkers, there's no bagels, and then I add to it, and I just broke the coffee maker. Another crisis on top, you see? So I'm anding it. Yes, and. And over here with my sibling, uh, so yes, yes, I broke your toy. And what could, what could be added to that to be a yes, and? And what else? And what? I meant it? <laughs> Did somebody say I meant it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do we have siblings here? I feel, like there's a, I feel like there's a weird dynamic going on here. Yeah. I mean, don't you want to see that scene play out? <laughs> Do it. <laughs> so this idea of yes and then and, again, it, it shows me what an interactive relationship with God could look like. Because God wants me to engage with him. He wants me to be responsive and interactive and in the moment where it's not that he has this rigid set of rules and this exact line for me to follow. It's he, he, he contributes and then I contribute. And then he responds to what I did. And then I respond to what he said. You see that? just like every other relationship. Because the bottom line is, God wants us to have a tender, responsive heart to him. 
He wants us to live in a faith that is defined by our responsiveness to him, not by a rigid set of rules. And so often, so often we choose the rules, don't we? Sometimes it's easier to choose the rules because they're defined. There's a clear black and white line. I loved what Mike said last night where he's like, I don't know. I don't know where that line is because it's relationship. And yet so often we just decide to try to look Christian-y, try to do things that seem like they're supposed to be what a good Christian might do because I guess that's what God wants from us and we get stuck in that. And that is so ironic because everything in us wants to be free. Everything in us wants to experience this full potential of what God has to offer us in life. And God's like, yeah, that's because that's how I made you. That's what I want you to do. And yet we constrict ourselves. And sometimes I think it's because we have a problem with our heart. Like it gets hard and it gets calloused and numb. And in some ways we find comfort in the checklist. And as we do that, it becomes harder and harder to respond in the moment to a living God who is inviting us to listen, to be in the moment. And when I say heart, I mean all of it. I mean everything about the core of who we are. It's how we make our decisions. It's our motivations. And thinking about heart that way, let me ask you, how is your spiritual heart doing today? Does it feel like it is alive toward God and responsive? Do you feel like it is growing and getting stronger? When you get hurt, does it heal? When you have a challenge, does it get stronger? Have you been experiencing the ebb and flow that is a good relationship with God? In other words, have you been feeling alive in your relationship? with God. Or when you think about how you're doing spiritually, would you maybe say that you're feeling a little lifeless, like maybe your heart is unhealthy or unresponsive, a little unenergized? The people of Israel were confronted with the reality that their hearts had become unresponsive. In fact, the Bible describes them as having a heart of stone. During the years that they were in captivity, remember I told you that they, many of them left and they were in captivity in Babylon and they were taken to this other land. And during that time, there was a guy named Ezekiel. And Ezekiel was a priest and a prophet, which basically meant that he was the messenger of God. He would hear from God and he would communicate to the people. And it was a tough time to be that guy because things were not going well. And Ezekiel's message to God's people was rough because they were in a tough place. His words did not make them feel any better because he would remind them of why all this had happened. Like they had grown apart from God and this was ultimately what was brought on because of that. And he would say things like, God will pour out his wrath on you. And he would say things like, doom and disaster are going to come on you. Like, if Ezekiel was your Facebook friend, you would block him. Like, he's so negative. <laughs> but then what happens is there's this shift. This shift where God 
begins to tell his people that he will restore them. Listen to Ezekiel 36, 26. This is God's message. He says, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And what we see there is God is saying, I'm going to do a heart transplant on you. I'm going to do a heart transplant, and I will make you new. A couple of years ago, I thought that I might have a heart problem. I had decided with my husband, Chris, to go to like a cycle class, a spin class, and uh, because, you know, you're supposed to exercise. And so I went to this class, and he and I are sitting by each other on our stationary bikes, and we start going, and I start to feel all the things you're supposed to feel. I start sweating. My heart is going. I'm starting to get a little fatigued, and the instructor was like, okay, now that the warm-up's over... And I'm like, that's cool. This is how it's supposed to go. It's fine. I think it's normal to feel a little dizzy. No problem. So I'm kind of going on my bike, you know, and then at one point she says, now reach down and there's a knob and you want to turn that so it becomes harder to pedal. Okay. I just pretended. I was just like, <laughs> not doing And I'm going, I'm going, and I'm continuing to feel like a little dizzy, kind of seeing spots, but I'm like, that's probably fine. I'm on a stationary bike. What could happen? At one point, I just put my head down on the thing and just keep pedaling. And, and Chris, Chris is like, are you all right? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm totally fine. It's totally normal. All right, so then I get to a place where I'm like, I think I need to leave. And I look, and of course, I am the furthest from the door of any bike, but I see the door, and I know I can make it. And so I get down, and I start walking toward the door, and the, the, the world is becoming blacker as I go, but I, I make it to the door, and I get to the doorway, and I look out, and I see a chair kind of across the area, and I think, I just got to make it to that chair. So I walk, I make it to the chair, I sit down, and then I just felt like, I feel like I need to be closer to the floor, and so I just slide down the chair until I'm sitting on the floor of the gym, and yet I still... I still felt like I needed to get closer to the floor. And so I just laid down right in the middle of the gym floor. Now, here's what you got to know about our gym. When you, you come up these stairs, and just to the right are where you can grab a towel, and then further over are all the machines. And I was laying right here, and it was as if People see people laying there all the time. Like, no one noticed me. They would come up, grab their towel. They'd be like, I'm going to go over here. And so I'm just laying there, not sure what to do. So then finally, in my vision, so I'm like this. I just see this feeling. In my vision, a face comes into my view. And she's like this. Hi. My name's June, and I'm a first responder. And I'm like, hi, June. She goes, your face looks very red. Can I get you some wet towels? Yes, thank you, June. June leaves. 
And then a couple minutes later, another face comes in, and it's one of the trainers. And she's like, here, I brought you this uh, drink, drink. Go ahead and drink this. And then a few minutes later, people are still stepping over me. A few minutes later, uh, June comes back, and she's got wet towels, and she's putting them all over me. So I lay there for a solid, like, 10, 15 minutes. And then I finally feel like, okay, I think I can sit up now. And I sit up, and they help me slowly sit up. And then I sit like that for another five or 10 minutes. And I finally feel like I can get back in the chair. I'm feeling a little bit normal. Some of you are probably wondering where my husband was this whole time. <laughs> yeah, he just finished the class. He comes out. He's all sweaty. What happened to you? I'm like, I almost died. That's what happened to me. So we're talking later, and he's like, you know, you, you, this has happened before where you kind of get lightheaded, we'll go on a bike ride or whatever, and, and maybe you should go to a doctor. And so I did. And I was really hoping when I went to the doctor that, that I would be like the 0.01% of the population that should not exercise. <laughs> like that was my goal. So she has me, hooks me up to all these things and has me go on like a stress test thing. And sure enough, in a few minutes, I'm getting dizzy and I have to sit down. And she does these, she checks on the computer, does all these tests. And she says, well, so your blood pressure is a little low. Uh, you could add some salt to your diet. And, you know, before you work out, have a Gatorade. And I was like, but doctor, are you sure it's safe for me to exercise? Because it seems dangerous. She's like, yeah, you're fine. But I haven't been back because I don't want to risk it. I feel like I need to <laughs> be a good steward of that, you know. And the thing is, is that our physical hearts, like all she did is hook me up to some stuff, read the monitor, told me what was going on. Like even when you have actual heart problems, which is not me, apparently, it's kind of relatively easy to find out what those problems are as compared to our spiritual heart. It is so much easier to know what's going on physically because someone can tell us. But spiritually, we have to be asking the right questions to know, how is our heart doing? Do I have a heart of flesh or do I have a heart of stone that is unresponsive and stubborn and rigid? God's people in the story had a heart of stone. But God said that he would restore them. And for them, restoration came. Restoration was something they experienced when they experienced his presence again. See, for the Israelites, the temple, their place of worship, is where they experienced God's presence. Their, their understanding of where God's presence was was located in the temple. That's weird for us to think that they would think that God's presence is a locational thing, but that is what it was. And so they would go to the temple to be in God's presence. But the problem is the temple was in Jerusalem and they, I know I'm going out of the screen, we're in Babylon over here. You see the problem? If I have to go to the temple to experience God's presence, how do I do that when I'm so far away? Big problem. But then an even bigger problem came because while they were in captivity, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. It says in Ezekiel that 
God's presence left the temple. That's how they described it. The temple was destroyed and God's presence left the temple. So for these people, so far away, so lost, so disconnected from where God wanted them to be, they literally felt God's presence go. And in the middle of that is where they get this message from Ezekiel of God's promise to restore them. God's promise that says, I will heal you. I will restore you. I will fix the problem between you and me. I'll be back. It's my best Schwarzenegger impression. I can't do any better. God says, I will be back. My presence left the temple, but I will be back. And Ezekiel, he talks about restoration and holding on to the hope that God's presence will restore them. And at the very end of the book of Ezekiel, it talks about how God's presence will be restored Describing Jerusalem, this is what it says in chapter 48. The name of the city from that day shall be, the Lord is there. The Lord's presence will be with you. The final culmination of Ezekiel's message, God's message to these people who felt so removed and disconnected was, I will be with you. And what that tells me is that it is his very presence in us that restores us to a new reality where we can be responsive and engaged with him in what he wants to do in us and through us. We've been looking at the words of Ezekiel, which are in the Old Testament, but when you fast forward to the New Testament and we read about Jesus on the cross, something significant happened. By then, the temple had been rebuilt in Jerusalem, and between the most holy place where God's presence dwelt and the outer place was a thick curtain, like very, very thick, several inches thick curtain, and it separated these two rooms. And what we read about is when Jesus died that that curtain was ripped in two. So for all these generations where God's presence was accessible to his people only into the temple, now through Jesus, his presence becomes personal. It is no longer found in one place. Now it is found in his Holy Spirit living in us. Because of Jesus' death, God's God's presence is permanently with us. In 1 Corinthians, it says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? It says you are where God dwells. And that is the very reason that we, who often have unresponsive, rigid, sinful hearts, can have a responsive heart to God because his spirit is in us. And ultimately, it's through Jesus' death that that exchange happens, that our stony heart is exchanged with a tender heart of flesh. So I want you to get that, get that. When it comes to trading our stony heart for a heart of flesh, we don't have to do anything but believe. Jesus did it for us. 
In 1 Corinthians, it says, if you are in Christ, if you follow, are of Christ, you are a new creation. You are. The old is gone. The new has come. And this verse, it resonates so much with what we read in Ezekiel where God says, I will give you a new heart. I will exchange your stony heart for a heart of flesh. I will do it. It's not dependent on how well you check off your spiritual list. I will do it. God says, I have done it. It is fully dependent on the work of Jesus. So if you are someone who has accepted Jesus' death to pay for the debt that you owed, then in fact, you have a heart of flesh. You have everything you need to be fully responsive to God in your life. But the truth is, we don't always live that way, right? That is our potential, that is our reality, but we don't always live that way. Have any of you ever heard of something called Aaron's thinking putty? It's kind of, I have a picture of it. It's kind of like a silly putty, but it never dries out, changes color with, when you warm it up with your hands. Uh, you can leave it out and it just turns into a blob. Aaron's thinking putty is a good example of this. This is the one we have at home. It's the zombie version. That tells you a little something about our house. But um, this is such a picture of how our spiritual hearts can be. Because they are moldable, they are shapeable, but do you see what it comes in? Can you see what the putty comes in? What is that? A tin. It comes in a tin. Like our heart is in there. That soft heart, that responsive heart is in there, but some of us are still in the tin. You know, like we got to find a way for that heart to make it out of the tin so that we can live out the soft heart that God has given us, that we have been equipped with through the Holy Spirit. Because we have his presence, but we don't always live like he's present. And so in our last couple of minutes together, I want to circle around that question of how do we get out of the tin? How do we live into the restored heart that we have been given through Jesus? And I think for many of us, the tin is made up of the distractions in our life. And distractions is kind of a big, all-encompassing umbrella category, but I believe it is some of the ways that prevent us from living into the restored heart that God has given us. And I don't just mean the negative distractions, actually. I mean the good ones, too, because sometimes distractions are good. Some of us are distracted by our kids or our grandkids, or we're distracted by our career going well. We can be distracted by other relationships in our life that are very life-giving or even, even enjoying the blessings that God has given us. The very gifts that God has given us can be a distraction. And I say that because sometimes what happens when we have good distractions is that they so much monopolize our time and our focus that if we are not intentional, it's very difficult to be attentive to what God is doing in it. Like we get, we get like this and we're down here and it's good stuff, but we forget to be attentive to where God might want to meet us 
in these good places. So I wonder, what if the distractions, focusing away from those distractions is one of the ways that we get out of the tin? Like, for example, I have two girls, a 16-year-old and an 11-year-old, and they are a good distraction for me. A lot of my afternoon, especially after school, is spent, like, driving them places and having to coordinate and organize and all that kind of stuff. And it's good. It's good. But what if, what if I saw that distraction as a place where I could meet God? What if as I enjoyed time with my kids that I could also look and see how can this relationship, this experience, soften my heart toward what God might be showing me or how God might reveal himself to me in this? Let me ask you, what's the good distraction in your life that might be an opportunity for you to live more intentionally in the soft restored heart that God has given you. I think seeking God's presence in our good distractions is a way to do that. But often, for a lot of us, our distractions aren't so good. They're bad distractions, like an unhealthy relationship or the grief over a child who seems to be making some really bad choices or conflict in our relationships or addiction, just really any harmful pattern in our life. Sometimes a bad distraction is being hurt by somebody that we trust, or often a bad distraction is just the crazy, out-of-control busyness that we so often experience. And I think often our strategy with bad distractions is to just try to get through it, right? Just like toughen up one day at a time, get through it until I can overcome it. But What if, before you could really do that, you have to look deeply in the distraction and find what God has for you in it? Because if we really believe that God is present, then we must believe that he is present in our bad distraction as well. And so I want to invite you this morning to consider where might you find God's presence in the difficult not life-giving distraction that you're facing. Because when you do that, that is often the way that God can lead you out of it. And quite often, the distraction doesn't go away, right? So if this is a distraction, especially one that's out of your control, if this is a distraction that you're going to be in for a long time, doesn't it make sense to find God's presence in it? To find how Within it, you don't have to be confined to the tin, that your heart can be revealed. And what happens in that, what changes for us, I believe, when we intentionally look for God's presence in what he has already done in our life, that we will change. And sometimes even other people might change. Because these other people who have been used to coming smack head onto the tin of us, suddenly they see something different. Suddenly they see a gentle responsiveness that only comes when we practice living into the soft heart that God's given us. And what happens in us when we step out of the tin, when we look for ways to get out of the tin, 
is that we get to experience the authentic, list-free, relationship-based, life-giving relationship that only comes when we know God's presence in our life. Let's pray. Father, it is with grateful hearts that we come to you knowing that you have already done it, that you have already done everything that we need to receive your good heart in us. God, I pray today that you would help us to be more and more aware of your spirit, enlivening our choices, opening up our eyes to the love that you have put in our lives. God, I pray for those who have been satisfied or pretending to be satisfied with the heart of stone, God, that it would begin to crack today. And God, that we would see underneath it all, underneath all of our bad decisions, underneath our regrets, underneath the patterns that we get in that can deter us, underneath that, that we would get to know the soft heart, the responsive heart that is because of you. God, we are grateful.